which is arms and closed hand, associated with the word hand and work and throw and worship. Your hands make me, made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your word. I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. May your unfailing love be my comfort according to your promise to your servant. Let your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be put to shame for wronging me without cause, but I will meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, those who understand your statutes. May my heart be blameless towards your decrees, that I may not be shame. Praise the Lord. Okay, <laughs> let's see here. We got um, uh, Chip in back is doing well today, and he's got some good numbers with his cancer. So we're praising the Lord for that. Thank and we got uh, Tom says that it'll be another week or two before he gets uh, an update on that. And so uh, we'll see how he goes. And uh, we got some people visiting here from St. Paul, Minnesota, the Twin, Twin Cities area. And we want to thank you for coming all this way just to uh, sit under a coconut tree with us. And I know the mornings get real, real, um, what do you call it, foggy. And it's just that time of year that the water is warmer than the, you know, and then all of a sudden we get a change in the weather and it gets fog in the morning happens and then you saw the day's beautiful and that'll probably be the same until friday night what's that real foggy out there right? oh i bet it is it, oh yeah right now because it's cooling down again so absolutely i see somebody else just walking where are you from ma'am oh good well welcome good to have you here first time here but i'm sorry i'm gonna have to leave i have to that's no problem at all. It's, what's your name, ma'am? Freda. Oh, it's Freda. wonderful having you, Freda. Yeah. All right, welcome here. Um, we have uh, uh, a prayer request from Helen in Ontario. She uh, had lung cancer surgery, and um, she uh, is having very high pain levels, very high. And uh, they got the cancer, but uh, she says that uh, her problem is that she's got to return to work by January 29th, no matter what, because of their system up there. And um, there are no company benefits, even though she has insurance, because of the age that she's at. She's in just a very complicated position, which is would have been the case here in America as we continued on with the previous uh, medical care. But that's all going to be done away with now, and we'll go back to something more user-friendly, we'll hope. But uh, she, uh, she asked for prayers because she just needs to get the pain level down, and we want to remember her in that so let's, before we get into the Bible, say, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you so very much for the chance to come and to honor you and to open your word and to share in it with you. And we thank you for those that are visiting here today. And we would pray that they'd hear something that would bless them and uh, uh, that uh, the word would sink deeply into all of our ears and then into our hearts and change us and mold us into your wonderful image, Christ. We thank you for this precious word. We thank you for the chance to share it and to just look into it. And we pray for these people that uh, are in here today and Helen, who's uh, sent a request for prayers as well. And for all the others that are attending online that are a part of this congregation and that have their own pains and trials and difficulties. And you know each one of us, Lord. So search out our hearts and open Open up uh, your grace, your fountain of grace, and meeting our needs according to your wisdom. We thank you for, once again, the chance to meet here and to share in this beautiful treasure, your wonderful word. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. So, hello, Pat. How are you today? Good, good. Okay, I got a couple things I did not get to do this last week because Burke took over because I was sick, and uh, so I appreciate that. But uh, what was it that I wanted to read? I had some. This is my monthly uh, Table Talk magazine, and I usually have something that. Uh, I want to read out of here, and I don't know why I have the page on here. There was only one page, and um, I think it was probably because it was a good article. We'll get started, and if it turns out not, I remember, but uh, we might as well read what uh, whatever it was that I highlighted here. Just for, for you that don't know, this Table Talk magazine, which comes out of Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul, who just died a couple weeks ago. Um, he's a Reformed theologian, not a dispensationalist. I have a lot of disagreement with him on that and a couple other issues. But I read this every day of my life, and there's a lot of valuable information in there as well. Um, this is by L Aaron L. Garriott. He said, ah, this is, a, I remember why I, I highlighted this, is because it's exactly how I feel about the Word of God. I do not believe that God speaks today. I, I just don't. I, if you disagree, I have no problem with that. Uh, people think I'm insane for saying that, and that's fine. But I believe that God has spoken. That's explicit in the book of Hebrews chapter 1. There's no need for further revelation, and in fact, it would only convolute our walk with the Lord to have people prophesying today. So here, uh, I wanted to read you this. Somebody agrees with me on this stand. Why doesn't God speak to us today in the same manner he spoke to people in the Old Testament? There's a commonly uttered question that presupposes God isn't speaking to us today. Yet, if we believe that God speaks at all today, the question is how? The author of Hebrews leads off his letter answering this question. God has spoken, finally, through his son, Hebrews 1.1. Jesus Christ is the vehicle for God's self-disclosure. But how does Jesus Christ, how does Jesus Christ speak to us? My three-year-old daughter knows the answer to this question. Her catechism asks, where do you learn how to love and obey God? Answer, in the Bible alone. There are five solas that uh, the Reformed theolo theology uh, stands on, and I agree with each one of them. Sola Scriptura is one of them. Scripture alone. We don't need doctrine from anywhere else because the Bible is God speaking to us. He has spoken to us, and it is his revelation of himself. So he's got a three-year-old girl that's already being uh, catechized, or however you pronounce that, so that um, uh, when she grows up, she'll be a sound person. Talk about starting him out young. Good job, buddy. My three. Um, anyway, um, the next question is, who wrote the Bible? Answer, chosen men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. That God speaks through the Bible, yet chosen men wrote the Bible, seems to be paradoxical, but there need not be a logical disconnect if we understand the Great Commission, the commission Jesus gave to his apostles just prior to his ascension. Yes, chosen men wrote the Bible. These men were commissioned by Jesus. This is called the apostolic age. We had the age of the prophets. We had the age of divine revelation through the people of Israel. And then afterward, we had the apostolic age. The apostolic age ended when John wrote the word amen in Revelation 22, verse 21. That's, it ended. It, that We no longer need God's revelation because he has spoken everything that we need for our current practice, our current doctrine, and what he wants us to know in the end times. There are certain things he doesn't want us to know, and there are certain things he doesn't want us speculating on. But what he wants us to know, how do we know that some things are not to be known in the end times? Because the seven thunders spoke and the Lord said, don't write it down, right? We know that there are certain things that he did not want the people of God to know. You know, people can claim that they know what the seven thunders are and they can write websites and put a donate button on there and fool people, but we're not going to know. The Lord 
has spoken through his word, and that's where that stands. So he said, um, uh, yes, chosen men read, wrote the Bible. These men were commissioned by Jesus. Um, the com- commission was situated in the context after his life, death, and resurrection and before his ascension. The task of these men was to continue laying the foundation of the church. Now, a foundation is laid how many times? <laughs> you lay one foundation. Jesus Christ is the foundation, and then it says in 2 Corinthians that the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. What does that mean? It means that they speak about Jesus. In other words, the one foundation is their word about the Lord. Okay, there's one foundation. He's the cornerstone. He's the capstone. He's everything in between. But there is one foundation, and that is by the apostles and the prophets. Unless you believe in continuing apostolic authority, which there's nothing to support that anywhere in human history, even though the Pope claims it and other churches around the world state that they are apostles, they aren't. Okay, they're not writing the word of God. They're not receiving the word of God. So um, if you disagree, that's fine. I'm not one to argue this, but I just disagree with people that say that they have divine revelation because then, by necessity, it should be put into Scripture. It should be something that is there telling us what we're supposed to be doing with our life. And we don't need it. There's no need for it. So we'll go on. This is significant because Jesus told his disciples in John 10 that he would gather other sheep who are not of the fold of the first century Israel by ensuring they hear his voice. But these sheep won't hear the voice of the master directly. That is, we don't hear the voice of Jesus in the same way the apostles did. No, we hear the voice of Jesus through the writings of the apostles. I really like this article. That's why I'm reading it to you. Is because out of the entire table talk, sometimes I, I, I get so angry that I, I, you know, I point at it and I poke at it and I, I underline stuff. But in issues when it comes to sola scriptura, I am right on board with these guys. Seven chapters later, the, uh, John records the high priestly prayer when Jesus prays not only for his disciples, but for those who would believe in succeeding generations. He further discloses the avenue or vehicle which future Christians will believe through the words of the apostles. Chapter 17, verse 20. God speaks to his people through his son, God's final and better revelation, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. The, and the Son communicates this divine self-disclosure, not through the medium of personal or audible communication, but through the spoken and inked word of his commissioned apostles. These words have been preserved for nearly 2,000 years as the continuation of the apostolic mission, and thus the Messiah's redemptive mission. A closed canon does not imply silence on the part of God. However, it means that God has nothing more to say to us about what he expects from us. I loved when I read that. This guy is spot on uh, to say us about what he expects from us than he has said through these chosen men. God hasn't promised to speak to us through dreams, visions, or donkeys, okay? But he has spoken a final word through his son, who entrusted a few select men with this task. So Christian, dust off. The compilation of 66 books on your nightstand and unplug your ears in the pew, God is speaking to you. I I loved it. So anyway, usually I I have something of fault to find in the table talk for the month, and uh, I I could not do that. After reading that article, I said all other things I'm just going to set aside this month because he did a wonderful job. And then uh, we have one more thing to read. Today is the 11th of January, and uh, this day in Christian history... Where is Timothy? His mother and father wondered once again. 
The lad was often late for dinner and predictably hard to find. When at last his parents found him seated under an apple tree, he was teaching the catechism to a rapt congregation of New England Indians, whom he met in the street and invited to discuss the Christian religion. Completely absorbed in his endeavor, Timothy Dwight had forgotten the hour. The particular event, though not out of character for the little boy, was highly unusual for someone his age. He was four years old. Oh, my gosh. Born in... Talk about rearing up a child in the way of the yes. Lord. Catechism Bo stuck there. It stuck real well. Born in 1752, Timothy Dwight, the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, no surprise, was a child prodigy. Between the ages of four and 11, he was schooled in classical literature, taught himself Latin at 11 years old, and studied geography, grammar, biblical history, and the histories of England, Rome, and ancient Greece, all at 11 years old, folks. At 11, he was tutored in Latin and Greek, and at 13, he entered Yale. He graduated at 17, continued graduate study, and became a hired tutor at the college. It was an amazing record, but with sorrowful side effects. The four-year-old who chose teaching the catechism to eating supper became an adult enslaved to intellectual achievement, something that I've warned against here before. He gave up the physical exercise and cut back on eating and sleeping for increased study time. After ignoring his body for the sake of his mind, he was sick for months and nearly died. He was left nearly blind, never again to read without terrible pain and headaches or write without help to record his dictation. But Dwight served God, who works good out of all things. Since he no longer could read, he went outdoors where he could talk to people. Instead of learning from old dusty theology books, he learned from the man on the street. The long-term fruit of Dwight's personal suffering was an increased understanding of the life and labor of the common man. When the American Revolution began, Dwight joined, Dwight joined the Continental Army as a chaplain. He counseled, prayed, and exhorted men to faith and courage in the midst of fear and death. In the crucible of war, a pastoral heart was born. In 1783, he accepted the pastorate of the church in Greenfield, Connecticut, where he shepherded his flock and taught at an academy. Still an intellectual, he began to speak and write against French deism. In 1794, he published A Discourse on the Genuineness and Authenticity of the New Testament, a defense against anti-biblical French philosophies taking root at the university level throughout the newly formed United States. In 1795, God called Timothy Dwight to a new chapter in his life. He became the president of his alma mater, Yale College, a growing hotbed of deism. It's, if you're not careful, I'm telling you, churches, universities, they all have to be careful. They all have to be watchful because if not, within one generation, everything that had been worked for on the foundation of the gospel of Christ would be lost. We've seen it in every single Ivy League college or university out there. All of them were started as theological seminaries. Today, none of them teach the gospel of Christ, not one of them. So you will lose it. The college that I, uh, seminary college and seminary, Southern Evangelical Seminary that I attended is an apologetics and Christian philosophy-based college. And I am certain that unless they are very careful, within a few years, they will compromise because this professor quits. They need to fill the slot. There's nobody available, and they'll get somebody, a shark in there. They have to be careful. You have to pray for the, the people that are in seminary because they get all kinds of bad doctrine there. And you, anyway, we'll go on. In 1795, God called Timothy Dwight to a new chapter in his life. I read that. 
Um, uh, it, it, anyway, uh, talking about uh, Yale, Dwight found himself at war once more, but it was a war for which he was made prayerfully and confidently. He unsheathed the sword of the, the, sword of the spirit and stepped into the fray. By 1802, after seven years of Dwight's solid biblical preaching, hearts were softened, deism's back was bet, badly bent, and revival broke out on campus. Good job, buddy. One third of Yale's 225 students were converted to Christ under his preaching, and many became instrumental in larger revival that spread throughout New England, upstate New York, and onto the western frontier. It was the beginning of the nation's second great awakening. When Timothy Dwight passed at last from this life into the next on January 11th, 1817, he left behind a legacy of biblical scholarship and evangelical revival. They have a reflection. How did God work his purposes through Timothy Dwight's loss of most of his eyesight? How might his life have been different if he had not had the problem with his eyes? Was it a positive or a negative uh, for his life and ministry? Well, just like Isaac, who spent 40, more than 40 years of his life in bed blind because he, the Lord used that for his glory. He worked out the situation of the Bible. If you haven't followed those sermons from Genesis, you should go back and listen to them. What was it that happened when he was blind that served God's greater purpose and pictures oh, of Christ on and on and on the marvel of what what is revealed in those passages? And so one son was able to get the birthright, the other one didn't. We know all of the stories, but they all point to theological truths in Christ. This guy here, if he had not lost his eyesight, what would have happened? He would have Book. gone on and, he, yeah, bookworm the rest of his life. He would have stayed secreted away, and all of that knowledge would have just been left for people to read a couple of dusty old books, maybe. And, you know, by this time, nobody would be reading them. But instead, the Lord had a better pur purpose for him. So they have Hebrews 12, verse 6, the Lord disciplines those he loves. So you get off track, and uh, that's what's going to happen. Hello, ladies. How are you? Uh, okay, we have... Um, we're starting in Romans 9, verse 10, <laughs> 10 today. <laughs> so, please, go ahead. Okay. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Ah, speaking of Isaac, there he is. Okay, this is um, the second instance, Romans 9, 10, the second instance recorded by Paul concerning his statement in verse 8, where he said, and we went through it, it took us a while to get through that, those who are children of the flesh... These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. First, he brought in the promise of a son through Sarah, a woman who had been barren for many decades and who was past her normal childbearing years. And yet, God opened her womb and gave Abraham a son through her. Now, we're reminded of the unusual occurrence of the birth of sons to Isaac and Rebekah. Y'all should know the story. If you don't, go back and read it today. It's a marvelous story of um, uh, sovereign God's sovereign and divine election. And what's going on in her womb is something that will be used as an example later, right at the end of the Old Testament, and then it will be brought into the New Testament, and it will be fleshed out by Paul and Peter. But um, anyway, uh, uh, and just so you know, those that have never been here before, I'm just reading notes that I compiled on the book of Romans. I've done a commentary on line-by-line uh, -line commentary on the book of Romans, and that's what I'm reading here. So if you have a question, just stop me, and we'll just we'll go on. But uh, anyway, details will be given in verses 11 through 13. 
but knowing the circumstances prior to the conception of these children is enough to show us that God is in control. Let me read you Genesis 25, verses 20 and 21, right here. And uh, this it's a wonderful story. Like I said, it's a great sermon if you want to go back and see just what was going on and how it... But we'll go through a lot of the details I talked about back then. Genesis what? Genesis 25, 20, and 21. It says, oh, there it was. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. And then uh, I'm going to keep going for a couple more verses. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, okay? And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So the Lord is completely in control of what's going on. He's withheld the fruit of her womb until Isaac humbles himself and he asks for children. And the Lord responds. But I'm going to go ahead and read a little more. Probably I shouldn't now, but I'm going to read anyway because we're going to be going through this again. Uh, What's going on in verse 23 in particular? So verse 22, but the children struggled together within her. She's got her wish. And now all of a sudden she's got twins and they're struggling in her womb. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, listen carefully, because the words do not match what uh, Reformed theologians will often cite. They'll make an example of what is going on and why Israel is out and the church has replaced Israel. It's a complete misreading of what is said in these verses right here. So let me read them. Pay attention. Maybe we'll talk about it today. Maybe it'll be a little later, but we will talk about it. It says, and the Lord said to her, two nations... Two nations are in your womb, two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Okay, remember that there. Okay, so we'll go on. Um, it was a full 19 years of marriage, and still still, no child was conceived by Rebecca. Like Sarah before her, she remained barren. However, God is gracious, and he listens to the prayers of his people. Isaac pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord granted his plea. The line leading to the Messiah would continue, and it would do so through this woman who was barren for so long. At the age of 60 years old, after 20 years of waiting, Isaac would become a father. So imagine that. 20 years he's out there, and uh, no child, and the Lord granted it when he finally humbled himself and said, Lord... We want to have children, and uh, he didn't just do it like uh, through a maidservant. He did it through the wife who is now 59 years old and going to have children at 60. So we have a life application here for you. In Christ, good things come to those who wait. As the 27th Psalm implores you, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Go ahead. Okay, it's wonderful words, and uh, you think about uh, some of you were at the uh, funeral today of our brother Gene, who uh, we uh, worshipped with over at Grace Baptist Church for many years, and uh, Gene and Diane, uh, wonderful people that love the Lord, and Gene finally uh, passed away a couple weeks back, and um, he waited on the Lord, didn't he? And now he's with the Lord. So, you know, I, 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 I couldn't get emotional today. He was, had a long, long, beautiful life. He was healthy right up until the end, and then he finally, you know, he had to go in the ICU, and I went to visit him, and a day or so later, he was gone. But it wasn't anything, you know, I, I will miss him just like we miss Paul, but I got to tell you what, it was a wonderful service. 
everybody knows where Gene is, and everybody Gene knows knew where Gene it, was going. Gene knew where he was going. Absolutely. I mean, you, you can't get too emotional unless you're really close to that person. You know, a mother, a father, a brother, or a very intimately close friend. It's hard to get emotional when somebody goes home to be with the Lord, except in an excited way. You know, I, I tell Hedico all the time, there's nothing keeping me here. If the Lord calls me home today, I want you to dance. Just dance, because I'd much rather be there than here, especially after the flu last week. You know, you're, I bet you I said, and you think, well, maybe that's not right to say it, but it's the only thing I could say. When you're feeling so miserable, the only thing I could say was, oh, God, or oh, Jesus, or oh, Lord. I bet you I said it 400 times. You know, you're, you're, you're miserable. you got to throw up, and you, oh, God, there's nowhere else to turn. I don't know what people do other than... Without Jesus, how can you exist? I did. So happy for Jean. Does she get a little upset? What's that? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh boy, Hedico is. I'm telling you what, she is the most wonderful wife for me. She takes such good care of me, and then she doesn't get sick. And I keep asking people, how is it possible that you can be sick and sneezing and coughing? And there she is, not she's in getting healthcare. sick. That's she, why. Well, she's in healthcare. That's right, and she's around it all the time. But I just. I am amazed at the strength of my wife. She is an amazing person. Okay, 9-11, go ahead. All those people that uh, you wonder what they do, they go to Nick's bar at 4 for that happy hour. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> happy hour at Nick's bar. Oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah. Hey, Rick, I didn't see you come in. Charlie? How are you, brother? Yeah. Good, good, good. You know we're not going to be there Saturday. Yeah, I'm going to be there. Okay, I thank you for that because we... I got the candy. Uh, yeah, okay, good good deal. We, just so you know what we're talking about, yeah. he, he's from Indiana. He comes down here six months a year, five months a year, and uh, he always shows up out of the blue right at mission work. We're there every Saturday of our life. We never miss a Saturday, cumulatively. Somebody will, but, but uh, Rick just shows up. There he is, and then uh, this week he's going to be with maybe, maybe one other person Chris. because we've got Chris, and that's it. Yeah, normally Anybody there can be five or six or eight of us, but there's a, a funeral, so. We'll be there too? Okay, yeah. look at that. Oh, good. Oh, you're going to go? Yeah. Good for you. Okay. All right. So there you go. So thank you for doing that because, sure. you know, those people need to be ministered to oh, yeah. faithfully. And we haven't missed one Saturday now in over 10 years. So there you go. 9-11, go ahead. 9-11. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might be might stand okay very close i'm going to go ahead and th that they stop there and this one goes a little bit longer I, are you sure there's not something you've left off okay um i'll read it um for the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil that the purpose of god according to election we're talking about election here might stand not of works but of him who calls okay Election. It's a really important topic. People can disagree on it and still be saved, okay? But my thought is that if you get predestination and election wrong, you're going to have a different idea about evangelizing people. You're going to have a different idea about your security before the Lord. All kinds of things come into play there. But it's not something that is heretical to disagree. You know, R.C. Sproul's uh, view on that, the reformist view on it, is fine. It's it's wrong, but anyway. Um, but whenever election is talked about in the Old Testament, it's God paving the pathway towards Jesus. Beyond that, that's right. There's no it's, election. It's free will. Beyond it's that, so. free will, and if you follow the, we did this when we were going through the Exodus sermons with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And if you listen to people, they'll say, "Well, see, God, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart." 
You have to be very, very careful. You've got to go through each Hebrew word because they use different words for harden, chazak and this and that. And it is very clear what God is doing there. And it is not God actively zapped, I'm hardening Pharaoh's heart. He is progressively doing things so that, in other words, here's, here's kind of what's going on. I'm not going to get it too off on this, but Pharaoh doesn't want to let the people go. God does something just a little bit. And so Pharaoh responds by doing something in response, just like we see over in the Middle East all the time. Okay, if God went in and did a marvelous thing all at once, Pharaoh probably would have said, okay, I'm going to let the people go. He didn't do it that way. He passively hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh is to blame. God is not to blame for actively zapping that guy's heart. And you have to be careful following the Hebrew word by word. If you haven't watched those sermons and you want to understand what's going on, it's a lot of sermons. It took a long time to get through those things, but it is very clear what God was doing. He was passively hardening people's heart. So in the end, it's the person's fault and not God's. You can't say that God hardened me on purpose. And so he's, as a reformed theologian would, they would say that they God created people to be condemned, okay? I think that's perverse. God wants all to be saved and all to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, according to Peter. So he does not want us to be condemned, but to affect his purposes, he will work incrementally to have somebody harden their own heart against him. Did you have a question? Just a comment. For me, it works better if you think of that whole trend. That whole issue in terms of God's foreknowledge. That's right. He can't know. No, that, that's yeah. God, he has the foreknowledge. The there, there is something that you may hear in a church from time to time. It's a very good example of uh, somebody walking up to the gates of heaven and it says, I, um, uh, do you know the example I'm going to give? It says, um, uh, Save from the foundation. Of the yeah, save from the foundation of the world. And then when you walk through and you look at the other side, it says that um, whosoever, yeah, the one you're walking in, it says whosoever will come, come. It's a a, a welcoming offer that Christ gives. But when you turn around, it says God knew from the foundation of the world that you would be saved. So there is a, it's called synergism. Monergism means that God elects you, he saves you, and if he doesn't want you, you're not going to be saved. That's God's sovereign will without any interaction at all. Synergism says that God makes the plea and you must respond to it. He, and it's obvious. He gave the cross. He gave his son to die for the people of the world. The plea must be accepted. Okay. And plus we have how many whosoever wills in the New Testament. We've got if you believe, if you choose, if you on and on and on. The words are very explicit. So uh, you Choose whichever side you want in the uh, lines. You're not going to lose your salvation over it, but you will lose your direction, especially in evangelizing others if you hold to a different view. We talked about that in detail back in Chapter 8. So just so you know, we'll go on with, um, where were we? Um, Verse 11. Okay, without (laughs) jumping, excuse me, (laughs) without jumping ahead to verse 12, to which this verse is pointing, we can still discern several key concepts. There were two children, twins, in the womb of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau. Okay, now they were obviously not twins identical because one of them came out hairy and red like a garment and the other one came out smooth. So, But they were twins, okay? And uh, if you read the, the uh, original Hebrew, it says that Jacob was a smooth man. You know, they insert words there, but I like the way it reads, he was a smooth man. It makes me think of somebody like in a 
you know, a, a, what do you call it, a, a pool player or something that can trick other people. Anyway, just, you know, it's, um, it's like you get to uh, where David, and he's accosted by uh, uh, Nathan the prophet, and the Hebrew says, you the man. It doesn't say you are the man. They insert the word are. So you just think of nowadays people are saying, you the man. Well, there you go. Anyway, it's fun to read it if you go through the Bible without the, the uh, italicized words. You'll often get some pretty fun insights. Um, did you have something, Burke? No. no? Okay. So um, two children, twins in the womb of Rebecca, Jacob, and Esau, they were physically formed and fashioned by God before they were born. And God knew this would affect their development as people. Okay, we can go to Jeremiah 1, verse 5 for a perfect example of this. Jeremiah right here. Yes, I'm going to read it anyway, but you, Burke knows every verse in the Bible. He, uh, he just, he, he's, he's got them pretty much memorized, and it's something I've never been really good at doing is memorizing verses. But verse 1, 5 says, um, thus says the Lord, oh, I'm sorry, I'm in 2. It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Okay, well, if he knew Jeremiah, he knew everybody. He's just giving him an example because Jeremiah had something that he was saying to him. But before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you to a prophet to the nations. So this is the Lord declaring that he knows the end from the beginning. He knows all things. And uh, it's just one of those many examples in scripture that shows us that. So um, their physical development will have a bearing on their character as much as their upbringing after their birth does. Therefore, God's purposes will be revealed even though these things, even through these things. A description of the two is found in Genesis 25 again. I've already read part of it. I'm going to read it again just so that we understand. Um, Genesis 25. Let's see here. It says uh, verse 24. Oh, okay. I didn't read this. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out and took his hand and took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Yaakov. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them, or Jacob. Anyway, um, I'm not going to get into all the details, but just to kind of whet your appetite on that, you have the name uh, Esau, and that is a picture of Adam, okay? In the New Testament, when man was formed, God saw he created him. There's two words for creation, bara, in the first sentence of the Bible and used elsewhere for an act of creation. Then you have asah, to, to make something. And so Adam is the made man, and he is a picture, Esau is a picture of the made man. He's red. He's like the color of the earth where he was taken from. So he's got the red. And then you have, uh, what's his name, Jacob. And he is he who follows after. He's the heel grabber. It also means the planner, because when you grab somebody's heel, you trip them up. All of this points to Christ. Okay, you've got the first, you've got the second. Every single thing that was going on. And then, of course, Esau's name is changed later from Esau to Edom. That's right, Edom, okay, which is the people who descended from him. And that is a picture of Adam. It's the same root again, Adam and Edom. And everything about their lives is making pictures of the coming Christ. It's an astonishing study. If you want to learn what is going on in those passages, watch those sermons. You will be blessed. I I, I absolutely am certain of that. And I always get tickled when somebody emails me and says, I've started, you know, they started by watching the Prophecy Updates, and I, I am always saying to people, stop watching all these Prophecy Updates. And, you know, it's kind of like self-defeating doing that, but I want people to get into the Bible. And 
once a month, somebody will email me and say, I started listening. I started with Genesis. I've gotten all the way through there. I'm going into Exodus. That makes my day that somebody is willing to just simply, they download them. They're all on, um, what do you call it, MP3. You can get them right, strip them right off the internet. You can watch them on YouTube. That touches me more than anything else that I, as a preacher, there's nothing that means more to me than people that are willing to learn the word of God. And if I can be a part of that experience for them, and I'm not talking about just listening to these sermons. Listen to anybody that's out there that does a, a proper handling of the scripture and learn all you can. I'll listen to a sermon sometimes on, you know, turn on Moody and somebody's giving a sermon. And I'll think, you know, I, I never thought of that. I preached on that passage. I'm never going to preach on that passage again as long as I lived and I missed that detail. And it just eats me up. And at the same time, I feel great because I learned something. L listen to the sermons. Forget, you know, I, I listened to that Joy FM this morning on the way back from my morning job. And they were talking about your New Year's resolution. And you're probably struggling at this point. And they said, you get up in the morning and the first thing you do is lace on your shoes and you go out to jog and you're kind of, and I thought that would be the last first thing in the world that I would do every morning is get out and jog. Well, if you meant lacing shoes your shoes. Oh, yeah, put on shoes. Yeah, that would be the first last and then the jogging would be the second. I don't have time for jogging. I got to tell you what, Paul says that uh, uh, bodily exercises pro exercise profits a little. It's the word of God that profits for eternity. Why waste an hour jogging down the road, destroying your knees and all the other parts of your body when you could be reading the Bible? I, I do not have time for that kind Life of stuff. Life is a brisk walk. Life is a brisk walk. For me, my exercise is working at the mall. That's I, I get plenty of exercise there. I get very dirty there, and uh, it's it's a wonderful thing. I love doing it every morning of my life except Sundays, and uh, I get my exercise that way, and I can talk to the Lord while I'm doing it. But there is no strapping on shoes and going <laughs> jogging for me. So we'll go on. It says, um, God's purposes will be revealed even through these things. I read the description of the boys. <clears throat> these two children, before they had done any good or evil, as it says right here, were known to God. Their physical traits were fashioned by him, and these physical traits certainly were translated into their demeanor as well. You read the story, and you, you can't come to another, no other conclusion. Esau being a hunter, and Jacob being mild and dwelling in tents. However, while in the womb, these traits hadn't yet been a part of their development as post-birth humans. They had done nothing to merit the bestowing of physical traits which would shape them. Nothing. God made that, and those traits followed after because of God's sovereign choice and how he would create them. Now, you could say, well, did God actively create them as he did? In their case, I would say yes, but does he actively do it with every person on this planet? He's made DNA. DNA is a self-replicating thing. Every person will logically come out a certain way if you match that person's DNA with that person's DNA. At this point in time, two days later, you're going to get a different child. It's an infinite amount of changes, but God knows those changes. That's why he can withhold a woman from having a child today, and then tomorrow she does. Why? Because he wants those children to turn out that way. He is sovereign over these things. He created DNA, everything about us fits the pattern that he wants to happen and to occur in this world. Okay, so anyway, their physical traits were fashioned by him. These physical traits certainly were translated into their demeanor. Esau being a hunter and Jacob being mild and dwelling in tents, I read that. Okay, um, they had done nothing to merit that. In fact, they had done nothing at all to merit anything. 
where they were born, when they were born, to whom they were born, and so on, were all solely at the will and predetermined choice of God. Everything, every aspect of who they were or would be came by the foreknowledge of God, that the purpose of God, as Paul says, according to election might stand. He has prepared the way. The way has now been prepared for that person to be who he wants them to be. This is an immensely important concept for all people, not just Jacob and Esau. We have no right to call into question God's sovereign choices. We're bestowed life, time, and place according to his will. Paul will use this logic later in chapter 9 to explain to each of us that what God wills is right, whether we like it or not. You can say, well, God, why did you create me the way you did? Why was I born here instead of in, I wanted to be born in France in 1792 or something? Irrelevant. God made the choice, and we have no right to question that at all. Whether Esau liked or did not like being born with, it's a word called hypertrichosis, is irrelevant. That means hair all over his body. He was. God made the choice, and he came out like a hairy red garment. The reason for his birth in this manner is long and it's detailed, but it points, oh, I said this already to you, it points directly to the work of Christ. God was using these two boys' physical attributes, which would lead to their lifelong development and demeanor to demonstrate the spiritual truths and also to develop pictures of the coming Messiah. You follow the life of Jacob and it is astonishing. Everything he does after he secures the blessing and the birthright, and then he takes off for Padanaram, every single thing he does makes a, makes a picture of the seven dispensations of man. Everything. The last place he stops at is where? Sukkot. Sukkot. What's the last feast of the Lord that we're going to do in a couple weeks? Sukkot. Everything is pointing to the end game that Christ is doing for us. Everything that Jacob did was showing us the dispensations of man, how Christ was being revealed. One of the things, it's, it's so astonishing. You look at um, uh, Jacob is coming back. His brother is worried because his brother's coming. Esau's coming, 400 people with him, right? And he's worried and he divides it up into two camps, a picture of Christ's work, all right? And then he starts sending gifts to him, gifts to him. And he sends a certain number of gifts, and the gifts match the dispensations of time. He's coming. He's coming. The Jacob, the servants are told, and the word is used for servants there is malachim. It means messengers. Same, same word as um, angels in the Old Testament. They're called angels. And they're saying he's coming. It's showing Christ is coming. Each dispensation is a gift from God to lead us to an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And then he meets up with his brother, Adam, meeting with Christ. And there's this reunion and joy and weeping. See what I'm saying? Everything. Everything is ordained by God in order for us to see the coming Christ. Let's go on. Um, Harry red garment. The reason for his birth um, is detailed. I said that. Um, These things were purposed by God. And his election firmly established his will in the plan of redemption. And because they occurred prior to any volitional choices of Jacob and Esau, they were, as Paul says, not of works, but of him who calls. God is sovereign and he has done the calling. No works are involved in what's being presented here. Every aspect of those of who these two were, meaning Jacob and Esau, or would be, was determined by God from before the creation of the world. How do we know this? Because Jacob leads directly to who? 
Jesus. That's right. Being his ancestor. And speaking of Jesus in Revelation 13, verse 8, what does it say? Behold, that's right, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He leads to the lamb that was slain for his own sins. So it's obvious that the Lord knew all of these things and he predestined them way in advance, knowing that each one of these things would be used as examples in scripture to lead us to Jesus and also that the people themselves would literally lead to Jesus. Okay, before the world was created, Jesus' death was predetermined. If this is so, then everything leading to that death must also be predetermined. You can't come to an end without having planned the process of getting to that end. Everybody see the logic there? It had to be that way, all right? Any minute diversion, whether in the animate or even the inanimate creation, could change all of history. Therefore, all things were known from eternity past by God. Now, let's just suppose that something could get off at the time of Abraham, or it could get off at the time of Jacob. What would God do in order to correct that? Because he did it quite a few times. He stepped into the stream of human existence, and he said, I'm going to wrestle with this guy at night in order to affect my purposes, or I'm going to show up at Abraham's tent with two of my angels, and I'm going to have a talk with him. He is directing the narrative to ensure that it stays on the proper path. He shows up with the uh, parents of uh, Samson, right? He directs what's going on. He shows up right in front of Joshua, and he says, I am the commander of the Lord's army. Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. There's only one other time that that happens in the Old Testament, back at the burning bush when it was the great I am. The unseen becomes the seen. He is directing human history when necessary to ensure that it follows the proper path to get to where he would be born in a manger. Okay, but, but, this is all God's election. It, it yes. wasn't like it went off kilter. It didn't go off kilter at all. That was pre-planned by him to make sure that it stayed on. That's why I'm saying he, he knew that this needed to occur, one, to give us a picture of what's coming, and two, so that Abraham would stop and he would petition because the Lord listened to Abraham's petitions, and then he took his action down in Sodom exactly as he should have. All of that was done. But you're right. It wasn't because it needed to be done. It, would, it did need to be done, but not because it was messed up and he had to somehow correct it. It was because he planned that that would be the moment when he entered into the stream of time in order to do this. He is the master of time and space. He can show up anywhere he wants in his genealogy. He can show up anywhere he wants anytime to effect his purposes. And he did. And he led right up to himself. It's it's astonishing if you think about it. Anyway, that's why I always say I don't believe in any pre-incarnate uh, uh, Christ, as they said, that's a pre-incarnate uh, theophany of Christ. I don't believe that at all. It's the eternal Christ. It is the same Christ that walked with the apostles. Same one. He is outside of time, and he can re-enter time anytime he wants, and he can do these things. More so right? proving that he's always been with us. He has always been with us, so, and he still is with us. I will true. never leave you nor forsake you. So well, it just it's, it's marvelous. If you just think about what's going on, especially with what Paul is writing here, it's almost hard on the head. But um, uh, we've got that understanding this. We can look at our own lives. There you go. See? And the lives of all people who have ever lived and see that works have absolutely no part in what our eternal destiny will be. 
No works. I'm sorry. It doesn't matter if it's the Garden of Eden because Reformed theologians will talk about covenantalism, and the first covenant was a covenant of works. Incorrect. There was never a time where works were would save a person. Never. It was always by grace and through faith. Always. Okay? How can we work for that which is granted by God's election? If God elected, then how can we work for it? Impossible. We can only receive it as a work already accomplished by him. Done. It was done at the very beginning. Behold the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We can't work for that. There, that cannot happen. Okay? Knowing this, though, may lead to a view of life as fatalistic. But this isn't the intent of these verses. There's nothing in them or in any biblical passage or concept which negates free will in accepting the work of Jesus Christ. Nowhere are you going to find that in the Bible unless you take the verses which they cite out of context and they say, see, you know, John 6, 44 is the prime one that they use and they use it again and again and again and it is completely wrong in what they're analyzing. It's He's making that statement based on the revelation of himself in Scripture in chapter 5 to get to chapter 6. And then it's overwritten anyway by John chapter 12, where he says, Behold, I will draw all men to myself when I am lifted up. I got that backwards, but anyway. It, so John 6.44 is not a good verse, and it's the one verse that they hinge all of their Reformed theology on. Choice. We have a choice in our salvation. Okay? Um, Knowing this, though, made a fatalistic view. In fact, the concept of free will is actually upheld by knowing these things. Just because God knows what the choice will be in no way means that the choice we make is not valid. And I've had people say that to me. They'll say to you, well, if God already knows the choice you're going to make, then there's no free will involved. It's absolutely not correct. You know what? I know what my son is going to do when I turn my back. And I say, don't do it. And I know what he's going to do, right? It doesn't negate his free will. I turn around and he does it, right? We have certain things that we can know. How much more God who knows all things. He knows the decisions we're going to make. He's given us the book that tells us what to do and what not to do. And yet he knows that we're not going to follow this book at some points in our life. If you're Charlie Garrett, like every 15 minutes, right? But that is the way it is. He has given us his instructions. And then he knows when we're not going to pay attention to him. That's free will. It goes before salvation. It goes after salvation. It merely shows the infinite wisdom and knowledge of God who even knows what we will choose before we choose to make the choice. Okay, he already knows. He knows all things, but it does not negate our free will. My son had free will to do what he wanted. I'm picking on him today. Oh, my poor daughter. You all know Tangie. Oh, she sent us a picture this morning. You know, you, you have these um, uh, selfie things that you can make yourself look really gross and big lips and her nose that's this big. She got an allergy. Didn't she, Hidiko? It looks like Hidiko's here somewhere. She got an allergy and her lips are literally like this big. She looked just like a cartoon. Oh, I feel so bad for my daughter. She's taking Benadryl this morning and I hope she's better now, but... Anyway, I'll pick on my daughter next time. I'll pick on my son today. Anyway, um, uh, but we know what the choice is going to be with our own children. How much more will God know the choice we're going to make? Okay, Vincent's Word Studies, quoted, quoting Godet, have the following thought on this matter. Eternal salvation is not complicated. The matter in question is the part they play regarded from the theocratic standpoint. Paul is speaking of the election and choices of Jacob and Esau from God's perspective. 
and in accord with the will of God. But what needs to be noted when considering this is Paul's statement of the boys as not yet having done any evil or good, or good or evil, okay? It's not complicated. If these babies will eventually do evil, which in fact they will do, then to deny free will in them would be to ascribe the doing of the evil to to God. Absolutely right. See? Okay? This is why the concept of free will is actually upheld by what is being discussed here. We are free moral beings who make our own choices, good or bad. We make our own free moral choices. God merely knows what those choices will be. He is not the author of evil. We cannot ascribe evil to God. And that is what that is what Reformed theology ultimately must do. And so what they do, instead of saying, well, we, they know they can't do it. And so they just leave the blank and they say, from whence comes evil? Well, it's a, a question we can't answer. And they just leave it at that because they are not willing to accept that people have free will. If you deny free will, then there is no way you can ever resolve the evil issue. If you want to know about the evil issue, go back and watch the first four or five Genesis sermons I did. I go into great detail on it. Why did the devil fall? How did it fall? What about free will and man? How does that come about? It's all right there. Mostly I'm citing Thomas Aquinas, great theologian from the 13th century, but I, I will tell you that it is answerable and it is not complicated, but if you're not willing to believe that man has free will and salvation, then you'll never come to that conclusion. But they will never deny, you will see Reformed theologians will never deny that man has a free will to do evil. Okay, they will never deny that, but they will deny that you have a free will to receive Jesus Christ voluntarily. The phrase, from once came evil, is, is that, that's not good. No, not at all. Why, no. Why well, because they, because they have nothing to go on. No. There's nothing to go on when you deny free will in man. You have to ask the question and just leave it alone. Whence comes evil? Who knows? It, 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 it's a mystery. Well, I'm sorry, it's not. God has shown us right there in the first pages of the Bible exactly how the machine works. And it's a same problem that has been infecting all people all along ever since. And the answer is very, very simple. I'm going to send my son to take care of this problem that you messed up, and you have the choice, and if you accept that choice, good job, buddy, and if not, I got some bad news for you. That's it. It's simple. Anyway, let's go on. Um, let's see here. He's not the author of evil, but he is able to use our evil towards a good end. To an, Where's an example of that right in the Bible? I'll give you two. Joseph, exactly the one I was thinking of. The brothers sold off their brother Joseph, right? They did evil, and what did he say years later? He said, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. He was able to take their evil, and he was able to make wonderful pictures of Christ. Absolutely astonishing pictures of Christ, from being thrown in the pit all the way up until his exaltation as the second in command of Egypt and everything that follows, marvelous pictures of Christ. Absolutely astonishing well, the stuff. The biggest one is uh, the evil that Israel did to Jesus. Absolutely. He was yeah, able to use that evil for good. And he's saved many, many billions of Gentiles around the world in the process, and a few, you know, a remnant of Israel, and that will all be corrected. We're not at chapter 11 yet, but we're getting there, and when we get there, you'll see how God is correcting that. Okay? God is not done with Israel. I, I cannot imagine anybody saying, we've replaced Israel, and here's how you, as a matter of fact, prophecy update this week, unless I change it, 
the Christian part of that prophecy update is going to be solely on somebody's commentary on exactly this issue. I just I, I got so frustrated reading it. Somebody sent it to me that I thought we'll just we'll just read this guy's comments so you know what people are thinking. A Presbyterian minister, how. Oh, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll not get onto that now. Okay, to understand this better, an example may help. God gave the directive to Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, back in Genesis 9, verse 1. Explicit in this verse is that there is a God, right? Implicit in this verse is that in the bearing of children in order to fill the earth, there is a responsibility to this God. That's implicit in there. Okay, he says, do something, so we have a responsibility to do it. If someone has children, and they don't train the child up in the way of the Lord, they are not fulfilling God's will for the children. Right? Everybody got that? Yeah. God's will is that we train up a child in the way of the Lord. If such a person procreates and claims they are fulfilling God's mandate, while at the same time denying God through their actions, then they're not truly fulfilling God's mandate. He said, Fill the world with people, right? Well, I'm just doing what God said to do. But then they're not doing the rest of what God told them to do with those children, right? Okay, the condemnation of those children came through the free will choice of not acknowledging the very God that they claim they are acknowledging through the procreation. Free will must be, and in fact is, a central part of our relationship with our Creator. It's necessary part. And how people can rip it out and say, we don't have free will, is beyond me. Life application. To deny free will in man ultimately leads to ascribing evil in the world to God. It ultimately does. I don't care. There is no argument that any Reformed theologian has ever come at that can deny that fact. They'll just say it's not true, and we don't know where evil comes from. Okay? Calvinist and other doctrine will deny this, but it is the logical result of verses such as Romans 9, verse 11. God, God's formation of us, which ultimately helps determine who we are, does not lessen our responsibility to act in a morally right manner. We all have moral choices that we will make and that we must make, and it's our fault when they, we don't make the right one. It is solely our fault because I didn't spend enough time in this word learning what God wanted me to do. I can't process the decision. And if you don't, if you're not a theologian on the word, you can always write your pastor and say, Pastor, I've got a dilemma and I don't know what to do. What is it that I do with this? And my answer is usually the same thing. Is it against God's will? Well, yeah. Well, then don't do it. Or if they say no, then I say, then pray to God about it, sanctify it through prayer and go do it. He's not inhibiting you from doing things, but if you pray, Lord, this is something that I'm deciding on whether I should do or not, and I don't want to do it if it's not what you want, do you think he's going to make that happen in your life? Absolutely not. We've got Ray and Jess who were at, they, they showed up at the funeral today. That was so nice of them. They're here starting deputation so that they can take their three little children and go off to a life in Papua New Guinea, right? And he said, we could have gone to Columbia and it would have been $3,000 a month would be a required budget. And the Lord closed every single door because they've been praying about this. They've been going to school now for three years of intense schooling to serve the Lord as missionaries. When I remember when they were young and they were scared to even talk about it, they knew that they were going to be missionaries, but they were, what will happen when we have kids? What's going to happen when they completely yielded to the Lord? 
And what happened? They're going to Papua New Guinea. They've got to raise $9,000 a month. You talk about the biggest challenge yet ahead. That's it right there. You talk about people that show up in a church and the church says, oh, yeah, we'll help you. And they give them $10 a month. How are they going to meet that goal without the Lord directing them? And he will do it. I guarantee it because they have prayed about it and he has closed the other doors. And this is where they have to go. Why is it so expensive? The reason why is because they have to have a coverage for their medical care that is almost impossible to imagine because there is no medical care in PNG, none. And so if they have a problem, they have to be air evac out to Australia and it's very expensive. That is the majority of what they will be spending is just taking care of what may happen. You know, I had a friend who I, I went to Wycliffe with and she wanted to be a Bible translator over in PNG herself. She loved bugs. She was a bug person. She said, there are more bugs in PNG than any place on the planet, and that's where I'm going to do my, my work. And she went over there. She faithfully got her college out of the way. It took her four or five years. She went over there, and what happened? She got malaria. And then she got it a second time, and it ruined her health, and back to America she came. Why did the Lord do that? I have no idea, but she was faithful to the call, right? Okay, free will. He lets us decide these things and he asks us to pray about them and he has a plan all the way for us, all the way. We've got one brother who's just getting over uh, a drop in uh, his uh, body resistance over the past couple days because of his chemo. Today he's feeling better. But the Lord is using that to bring him glory. Okay, and I know it is because he talks to people about Jesus. He looks for an opening and he starts talking to him about the Lord. So the Lord is using these things but he gives us the free will to make those moral choices. Okay, 912. Okay, and we already learned my verse. Yes. Divisions are different, but some things are worth hearing more than once. So I will start. Not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Okay, there you go. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Picture of Christ, right? Adam was first. Christ came and replaced him, all right? And you see that again and again and again in the Bible. You see it again and again and again. Unbelievable. Even the words that are used in the Hebrew, twin, tom, right? In the New Testament, who is the twin? Thomas the twin. That's where his name comes from. And what he says matches what's going on in the book of Genesis. It's astonishing. What a word we've been given. The, uh, this continues what was said in verse 11, before the twins were born to Rebecca, they struggled in her womb, right? Children will fight as children do, apparently even in the womb. But this is an unusual occurrence because they actually beat each other up. The Hebrew word in uh, Genesis is yithrosatsu, and these two were really punching and bruising each other. They're having an argument in mom's womb. Can you imagine that? Talk about starting life off on a bad note. Mom was worried about both their safety and hers as well. And because of this, she went to inquire of the Lord. The account is found in Genesis 25, and I'm going to read it again here. I told you we'd be getting there, and uh, read it a second time today, Genesis 25, <laughs> 22. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, two peoples shall be separated from your body, one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Okay, at a time when the children were not yet born, nor had they done any good or evil 
except beating each other up, God made his divine election. The older shall serve the younger. The natural order of family life was once again reversed, as had already happened several times in the book of Genesis. The younger was placed ahead of the older, and thus we see the doctrine of divine election into redemptive history, introduced into redemptive history. This doctrine will find its ultimate fulfillment in the work of Jesus, and which is so clearly explained by Paul throughout the New Testament. Before they were even born, God elected the older to serve the younger. However, this serving and subordination isn't limited to the children, is it? Remember I told you to pay attention to those verses? Rather, the verse in Genesis says, to nations are in your womb. It is therefore speaking both of the immediate and the future. In this, then, is also a picture of the true people of God, the elect. It is astonishing how much is in this verse concerning the doctrines of the Bible, the foreknowledge of God, and the confusion that results from what is being said. Seminaries have entire courses on concepts which arise from what is being discussed about the Lord and what he said right here to Rebecca. What is being stated has led to some of the most heated battles in all of church history. If you follow what Calvin taught, you can trace it right here. If you follow what John Wesley taught, you can come right here. In the end, in all of the countless arguments about theology, there is always one right answer. I'm not telling you that I'm right. I am telling you I'm right, but I don't want you to trust that. I want you to study all of the views, and I want you to come to the proper conclusion in your own mind, because I could be completely wrong. We went through it already. We went through, you know, sublapsinarianism and uh, superlapsinarianism and Wesleyanism. We went through each one of those doctrines. We talked about it. And why is one correct and why is the other incorrect? And how do we know these things? What is it that God does? Because remember what I said, God does not think sequentially. And he also does not think dicursively. God knows everything immediately and intuitively. Everything. There's nothing he does not know ever. He doesn't think and then, oh, I'm going to do this. But when he reveals his plan of redemption to the people of the world, or when he works it out in the stream of history... It is done in a sequential manner. So we have to know first what God thinks, and then we have to see how he has laid it out. Because if we get it wrong, then all of a sudden, God chooses somebody to be destroyed. Before they're ever born, he says, that person is going to go to hell. He has no choice in it. I am sending him to hell. That is the logical outcome of hyperlapsarian, uh, what would it be, uh, superlapsarianism or whatever. You got these people that say that it's double predestination. God predestines these people for salvation. He predestines those people for condemnation. Okay? And then you have the second option. God predestines these people for salvation, but he just doesn't care about these people, and so he doesn't do anything. Okay, that would be most of your Calvinists and, and that doctrine. And then you have the one that says that God says... These people have screwed up. I'm going to send Jesus to fix it. The logical order is just different based on the fall of man. Okay? And so what does he do? He sends Jesus, and then he says, anybody who wants unlimited atonement, absolutely unlimited atonement, potentially. Remember that? Potentially. God says anybody can come to the cross of Jesus Christ and be saved. It is potential. Okay? Unlimited salvation or atonement. Unlimited... Uh, excuse me, unlimited atonement 
actual would be a heresy. That's saying that that's universalism. God yeah. just saves everybody. Yeah. Off, everybody goes to heaven. There's no hell. Well, then why go to church, right? But if you have unlimited atonement potentially, it takes care of the problem. Because Jesus said, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Doesn't mean they're all coming, but he will draw all men to himself. And then what do you do? You say, I want that. And you go up and you receive Jesus Christ and you are actually saved. So it's unlimited potential, uh, unlimited atonement potentially, it's limited atonement actually. That's the difference. And we went through that. But anyway, this is all found right in this verse right here. What is being spoken of? We went through predestination. It's tied in with election here. Okay. So let's see here. Um, uh, Although these things may seem tedious or overwhelming, they're actually, let me go back and read one sentence. I think I skipped. God is clear, but we misunderstand. The analysis of Romans 8 verse 29, it was discussed which view of election was correct and why. Remember that? That's what I was just talking about now. Although these things may seem tedious or overwhelming, and a lot of people don't want to talk about deep theology, they are actually of the highest importance in the life of the believer. If a wrong view of God's election is considered, then how we perceive our relationship with Christ can be affected in very unhealthy ways. We talk about this in the mission field. That's exactly why we go out into the mission field. It won't change our standing concerning salvation, but it can certainly affect our level of happiness in Christ. To help us to solidify why this is such an important issue, we can turn to Malachi, where he speaks of these two children at the time before the coming of the Lord in relation to the attitude of the people in Israel. This is Malachi chapter 1. Okay, if you don't know where that is, it's right before the book of Matthew. Last book in the Old Testament. 39th book of the Old Testament, and it says in chapter 1, I'm going to start with verse 1, but it's 2 and 3 I want to focus on. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, okay, my messenger. Sergio just did a marvelous study on that verse right there because people debate, is it, does my messenger speak of a person who is named Malachi, or does it speak of somebody that has the role of Malachi, my messenger? And Sergio definitively answers it based on the Hebrew. It's a wonderful little thing that he wrote up. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what, what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Okay, Malachi, speaking before the coming of Christ. According to his own wisdom, Without regard to merits, God bestows upon us life, time, and place. Some people have been created for noble purposes and some for ignoble purposes, according to that placement. However, all who have the opportunity to hear the message are also given the opportunity to respond to it. And what does Paul say in the book of Corinthians, one or two Corinthians? He says that not many of you were, you know, wealthy. Not many of you were this or that. You're just common people. So even in the ignoble purposes of life, he might have a very noble purpose for us, right? Anyway, in substantiation of this, we can look at the future of these people, the Israelites and the Edomites. They have descended from Jacob and from Esau. Everybody got that all the way through the Bible. When you see the Israelites, they descended from Jacob. 
okay, or they were grafted in according to Exodus 12. Uh, anyway, I, there are certain things you can do and be circumcised and then blah, 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 and then you can observe the Passover and you are as a native born. But we'll just go with Jacob and Esau for that right now, okay? Um, it says here, um, uh, they have descended from Jacob and Esau, who are both named in Malachi and by Paul in Romans. After being subject to the Israelites, and this is really important, I hope that you'll get what I'm trying to say here. The Edomites were eventually assimilated into the Hebrew people. I brought this up in a prophecy update about three weeks ago because it's such an important issue for people understanding Bible prophecy and what's going on in the world with this group of people over there that people say, well, they're not really Israelites. Right here. Okay, this is noted by the Jewish historian Josephus. You've got Israel, you've got the Edomites. The Edomites are living in the land of Israel, and a decision was made according to Exodus 12. All right, it says, um, um, this is noted by the Jewish historian Josephus. He says that about 129 BC, a guy named John Hyrcanus, who was in charge of Israel, subdued all of the Edomians. Those are the Edomites. That's the term that the New Testament uses for the Edomites, Edomians. You see Herod the Edomian, the king, right? They were Edomites, and he subdued them, okay, and permitted them to stay in the country if they would circumcise their genitals according to the Bible and make use of the laws of the Jews, exactly what Exodus 12 allowed, and they were so desirous of living in the country of their forefathers that they submitted to the use of circumcision and of the rest of Jewish ways of living, at which time, therefore, this befell them that they were hereafter no other than Jews. Exactly what it says in Exodus chapter 12. If you perform these things, you will become as of a native of the land. It is done. You are now a part of the collective body known as Israel. So everybody understand what happened there, and that's recorded history. These Edomites were allowed to stay in the land and they became part of Israel. After this, this is what's important. After this, this same group, because it includes the Israelites and the Edomites who are all Israel now, that same group of people was cut off from God's favor. Why? Jesus. Jesus. They rejected Jesus and they were exiled for the second time. As I said, Leviticus 26 presupposes two exiles. At least two, it could presuppose 20, but it presupposes more than one exile, and we know that there were two exiles. Okay, so now they're cut off. This includes the Edomites and the Israelites. Done. Anybody that comes to Christ is now a part of something new called the church, okay? But that group of people is cut off. That lasted for 2,000 years, exactly as the Bible predicted would happen. Ezekiel 4, we can go through that calculation again someday. However, the day has come and they are regathered and have been returned to their land. Who has been returned to the land? Israel. Israel, who includes the Israel. Edomites, who were exiled because they rejected Christ. Okay? The Bible in both Testaments says that someday Israel will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and that all Israel will be saved. Thank you. Okay, this includes the Edomite people that were assimilated into Israel before their dispersion. They were not other than Jews, exactly the way the Bible provided for them. Okay, so now do you see what's going on with Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3? What's going on with Paul here? And even more than that, there are Jews who have accepted Christ since the first century. 
and who continue to do so today. In fact, one rabbi said that more Jews have come to Christ in the past 19 years than happened in the last 1900 years. He's that worried about it, but they're coming to Christ. They are provided the exact same salvation and the same promises as anyone else that comes from any of the lines of Adam. Everybody is included in Christ if they are willing to come. What? Potentially. Potentially. Jew and Gentile may come. And if they do, then they're now in the church. Even though they're Israel and maybe a part of descending from the Edomites, now they're in the church. And they're in a completely different covenant. Okay? Were the verses in Genesis, back in Genesis 25, to have said, two babies are in your womb, and two children shall be separated from your body, one child will be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger, then people might have some type of argument for an opposing view on what God's election actually means. It doesn't say that, though, does it? I said it three times, but the verse doesn't say it. Instead, it says two nations are in your womb and two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. They subdued them. They allowed them to join that group of people. They are all Israel and the older shall serve the younger. Every word of God is pure and every word is intended to lead us to a right understanding of who he is and what he desires for his creatures. Every word. We don't read two babies are in her womb, and that is a fundamental error with people that take those verses and they say, see, they're not paying attention to what the verse says. It's not speaking about the immediate, it's speaking about the future with an immediate context, but certainly it is the future that is being highlighted in those verses. Okay, uh, do we have time for one more verse? Let's see here. Yeah, we'll get one more done. Life application, individual verses especially those which are citing Old Testament, cannot be ripped out of context in order to establish theology. If they are, then only confusion and an unhealthy relationship with God results. Keep things in context and verify everything that you read and hear. Everything. Because I've told you about some of the people that are such great orators out there, wonderful speakers, and yet their theology is so bad that they misdirect people to the point where they are completely confused about the purpose of Jesus' cross, about how it relates to Israel, about how it relates to the Gentiles, and yet they stand there and people follow them because they're great orators. Forget oration. That is the least point. You know that on Sunday morning for sure. Thank God for cut and move on the video editing, right? <laughs> oration doesn't matter at all. What matters is what this word says. That's the only thing that matters. Somebody stands up in the pulpit and just makes stuff up and says that the Jews are saved apart from coming to Christ in the new covenant. And thousands of people are listening to that and they don't even pay attention. And you tell them, anyway, we'll just go on. 913, go ahead. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I hated. What is he doing? He's citing the Old Testament, right? We just read that. Paul continues to make his argument concerning election directly from the fountain, which is God's word. This is a direct quote from a portion of Malachi 1, 2, and 3, which I just read you. I'm not going to read it again. The terminology used in this verse causes undue stress and even anguish among some Christians. I've been in Bible studies where people say, how can God hate 
they're, they're completely taking everything out of context. They're worried about the word hate instead of focusing on what God is showing us through election. That's why election is a doctrine in the Bible. We have to understand what God is saying in order to understand what God is doing. Okay, so um, what kind of a loving God hates like this? And so the words of Paul are often dismissed as being inaccurate and judgmental. Anybody had that happen? I, yes. I've had it several times in my life where people say, oh, just dismiss Paul. He is disregarded, and it's back to the Beatitudes for a lifetime of sermons which fail to take in the whole counsel of God, not understanding at all what God is saying or why these pictures from the Old Testament were ever used in the first place. However, there are many such examples to be found in both Testaments which speak of the love and hate in a comparative sense. First, we're going to turn to the words of Joab, which were directed to his king, the great King David. I'm going to take you to 2 Samuel chapter 19. And 7, 8, 19. And we'll go to verses 6 and 7. In that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regarded neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. Verse 7, now therefore arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth even until now. Joab was commenting in a comparative and ironic manner to show David that his actions were only harming his relationship with his subjects. It cannot be assumed at all that he actually meant that David hated his friends, right? He's making a comparison. But I have to ask you this before I go on. Was Joab right? Yes. He was absolutely right in what he said. The people of Israel would have rebelled against David, and it would have been the end of his kingship. So he got good advice from a really bad guy, a guy that in the end, he said, make sure his gray head doesn't go down to the grave in peace, right? He tolerated Joab because he was a good general, and he gave really good advice at times, but he also did some really bad things as well. David was no dummy. He's, our president's doing the same thing. He's got some enemies right in the White House with him, and yet he is allowing them to continue because they are the right people to affect his purposes as the president of the United States. He's a wise guy. I don't care what anybody says about being, you know, Parkinson's or all of these other things that they say, well, whatever they're saying. It's the new uh, flavor du jour about his brain, but he's making good decisions. Well, David was making some bad decisions and he had a good counselor. What does it say in the Proverbs? You know, many counselors take care of the issue. I know that's a misquote. The but... opposite side is saying there's more than two sexes. Oh, absolutely. So who's crazy? Yeah, who's crazy? Yeah, the opposite side is saying there's more than two sexes, he said. Yes, I Yeah, I, they're I insane. <laughs> okay, so he's uh, making a comparative and ironic manner to show David that his actions were harming his relationship with his subjects. Okay, in the book of wisdom called Proverbs, we read this from Solomon's hands in Proverbs chapter 13. I'm reading Proverbs every morning. It's uh, where I'm at in the Bible in my morning reading. And uh, sometimes it's a little hard for me to read because the couplets, you know, it's just one thought after another. And there's no real stream unless at the beginning of Proverbs and the end you've got some great, but the couplets are a little bit difficult. But in Proverbs 13, in verse 24, it says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him properly. 
Okay? Again, is Solomon implying that a person who fails to chastise his son truly hates him? No. The answer is no. Instead, the results of what a person's life will be like when they go unpunished can only be miserable. It's as if you hate your child because you're not disciplining them. You think you're loving them by withholding the discipline when it's the discipline which will actually teach them a lesson. That's the point he's making. It truly is as if the parents hated them for allowing them to end in such a sad state. The analysis is again comparative. And even Jesus spoke in this manner in Luke chapter 14. What did I pick out of there? I don't even remember what I was gonna. Luke chapter 14 and verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me, oh yeah, that's you're right. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Does Jesus expect us to hate in the literal sense of hatred? Or is it that our love for him should be such that any other loving emotion to be found in us should be closer to hatred than this highest love for him? The answer is obvious. Vincent's word studies explains the sentiment rightly when it states the expression is intentionally strong as an expression of moral antipathy. No idea of malice is implied, of course. Like the hyperbole. Hyperbole, yes. It's hyperbole. You pronounced it wrong. No, I'm, I'm sorry. kidding. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Okay, understand. <laughs> we got just time to finish. <clears throat> Understanding this, we should now determine who God is speaking about in this quote by Paul from Malachi. The answer is not Esau the person, but Esau the group who descends from the person. As noted in the commentary on 912, the prophecy given to Rebekah prior to the birth of the children was clear in this regard. Go back to Genesis 25-23 and you'll read that. Now not only this, but so is the remaining portion of the prophecy from Malachi. The continuation of verse 3 speaks of laying waste his mountains and his heritage. Then in verse 4, Edom is quoted. In other words, Edom is representative of the Edomite people. Therefore, both Esau and Edom are referring to the people descended from Esau, not the individual. Before Jacob and Esau had done anything good or evil, God's election was made. However, it wasn't merely pointing to the election of the individual, but the election of the group who would descend from him. If this is so, then it can be substantiated that they are not all Israel, which Paul says right here, who are of Israel. As he proposed in verse 9-6, God's election must be based on something other than the, what we would immediately think. And we'll continue on with that next week. Wonderful stuff in the book of Romans. I'm telling you what, Paul is very clear about what he's telling us here. Life application, one minute to go. See, just in time, the Bible makes it clear that what God looks for in individuals is... Faith, thank you. Faith, the big F word. Faith, our heritage, culture, race, economic status, etc. have nothing to do with God's favor. Zip. He took a harlot from the cursed line of Canaan and brought her into the ancestry of Jesus Christ. He also cut off kings who descended directly from David. He is not looking at externals, but the internals, and he is doing it with you as well. He's looking right on your heart. That's exactly, is this person an acceptable vessel for me to use? If you're saved, you're saved, but there is a difference between being saved and doing things for the Lord, right? You have your choice to make. You have your doctrine to set. 
and then you have to follow whatever path you're going to follow. Are you going to pursue Christ? Are you going to go out and do things that will honor him? Are you going to watch a lot of TV? Your choice. You want what do you uh, lace up your uh, shoes and oh, yeah. go out for a morning jog? Go ahead. Read the Bible. That's a lot better for you. It'll, it'll last you a lot longer when you're... You know what? Arnold Schwarzenegger, despite all of the work that he did on that body, is not a really healthy guy anymore, mm-hmm. right? He's old and he's falling apart. <laughs> Bodily exercise profits a little, Paul says. Stick to the Bible. Read the Bible. And when you're older and that old body is sagging and hurting and in pain, <laughs> you've got something to think about. You've got somebody to honor with that body. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord, and we are done. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Romans. Thank you for Paul's wonderful, wonderful words, which are clearly laid out in a sequence so that we can understand the marvel and the majesty of what you have done in human history, leading up to Jesus, and then explaining what Jesus did and how it relates to us. Thank you for salvation among the Gentiles. Thank you that my beautiful wife all the way from the other side of the planet is saved, and we've got people from around this country who are saved all sitting here in this room right now. Thank you that your tender hand of grace and mercy was even found in us, undeserving as we are. Lord, we certainly pray pray for Mabel, our sister who's not here tonight because she's got either the flu or a cold or something debilitating her, and we would pray that you would lift her up and give her bone strength once again. And uh, we would ask for patience for Barney, that he would take care of her and meet her every need during this time when she needs chicken soup and love, and we know that she'll get it. We thank you that you've given us each other to help through our times of trouble and trial, and thank you that uh, uh, once again we're going to be in just a couple days having our final memorial for our dear brother Paul, and we thank you for his life. We thank you that he was a man of God and that he uh, is now... in your presence, in your tender care, waiting for the day when the trumpet sounds and all of us will be raised together as one once again. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We exalt you. How good you are to us. All glory to you in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me back this baby up. Oh, and we'll say goodbye to the folks online. Let's see. It is recording. Good. Okay, hyperbole. we can go to great hyperbole. That's exactly right. Hyperbole. 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 Okay. Three, two, one. All right. Everybody have a wonderful night. We love you. Please take care, and we hope to see you Sunday morning, fresh and early. <laughs> I'm telling you what, it is so good to not feel bad. It is so good.